Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. In recent decades, extreme rainfall events have been on the increase. There have been 36 $1 billion flood disasters since 1980, and 11 of them have happened in the last five years. Sea level rise is leading to more coastal flooding, even in the absence of rain. Who is going to organize the charge to address these rising flood concerns? Melissa Roberts founded the American Flood Coalition to raise awareness to the reality of higher seas, stronger storms, and more frequent flooding. She is here today on Weather Geeks to tell us all about it. Melissa, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Dr. Shepard, thank you for having me. Thrilled to be here. You know, I have to start, if you've listened to the podcast at all or are familiar with it, I ask every guest the same question to start. How'd you become a weather geek or maybe in this case, a flood geek? It was not what I expected. I started my career in the private sector focused on infrastructure finance mostly sustainable infrastructure finance. And I got more and more intrigued that as we were talking about building infrastructure, there was one piece that kept being left out, which was this question of adaptation. And I was actually authoring reports where we were putting in a footnote and saying, we don't know how much adaptation is going to cost and neither does anyone else. And this was being looked at as a definitive report. And that started to really worry me because at the same time, I grew up in New England. I was seeing the impact on my community of not even major named storms, but even more minor flooding events and just how devastating financially it can be when your basement floods and it's $10,000 and that's unaffordable for most people. And I started to see this huge disconnect. And of course, I thought, I'll dip my toe in this and then go back to my private sector job. Um, so went to a nonprofit focused on data flood risk transparency and just became obsessed with this problem of how do we not only produce better data around flooding, but the question we focus on at American Flood Coalition, which is how do you get people to make better decisions with better data, especially our elected officials and other grass tops leaders that are making all of these small decisions that have this really meaningful impact on people's lives. You know, it's it's quite relevant to the discussion because last night here in the part of Georgia that I live in, a storm sat over us for two hours. It was training. I'm a meteorologist. So I'm using a term called training where storm was just kind of forming, reforming in the same location. And we got, I think, three inches of rainfall in two hours, just unbelievable rain rates. And we'll, we'll get into some of the discussion later about climate change and some of its impacts on rainfall rates and so forth. Because I'm sure you're focused on that. But let me give the listeners a little bit of your background so they know uh, somewhat about you. Uh, Melissa has a BA in intellectual history from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, as you noted, she worked with McKinsey and Company as uh, for many years as a business analyst and engagement manager. She was director of strategy at First Street Foundation. Yeah, we're friends of First Street Foundation. Mm-hmm. We've had them on before, and is the founding founding uh, founder and executive director executive director of American Flood Coalition. She was also a part of the Forbes 30 Under 30 for societal 
impacts in 2021. Congratulations on that. I'm a senior contributor to Forbes. So uh, always uh, nice to talk to someone. I know the caliber of people they put on those lists. Now, you kind of alluded to this a bit when you talked about uh, the American Flood Coalition, but give us the elevator speech. You got two minutes riding up the elevator for what it is. Absolutely. So American Flood Coalition is a national nonprofit focused on the challenges of flooding and sea level rise. And we're a nonpartisan coalition of folks on the front lines of flooding. So our cities and towns, elected officials at all levels, military leaders, businesses, and civic groups who've come together to drive adaptation to higher seas, stronger storms, and more frequent flooding that we're seeing across the country. And so the coalition's more than 290 members in 21 states, and we're focused on letting leaders exchange best practices, learn from each other, figure out you know, the new world of adaptation, what actually works, and even more importantly, you know, bring up and help lift local voices so that we're not solving the same challenges again and again in every community, but that we're helping create better state and federal policy to address the changing reality that we're in right now. Yeah, that's right. And I want to, you mentioned the word adaptation. I mean, when you talk about climate change solutions or what we do about this reality of a changing climate that we're dealing with, these new normals, people often will bring up mitigation strategies, which is to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you'll hear people talk about adaptation, which you've mentioned is, which is, okay, this is happening. What do we do? How do we sort of, um, you know, modify what we're doing in society and our lives and our infrastructure and so forth to deal with what's happening? And then on the more extreme end of the solution space, you'll often hear people talk about geoengineering or climate intervention solutions, which is modifications to uh, the atmosphere, the planet in some way to reduce warming. But it sounds like you're squarely focused uh, at the coalition on the adaptation part of the problem or solution space. Exactly. And I would say for a long time, you know, there hasn't been a lot of attention to adaptation because people thought this was something for the future. And a lot of times people created this false choice between the different steps that you're setting out. But really what we're seeing now, and this has intensified immensely over the last five or 10 years, is that these challenges of adaptation and increased flooding are not a future theoretical problem. They're here today and they're affecting the most vulnerable members of our society. So it's not actually a choice to say, do we wanna address adaptation or not? We have it right here in front of us. And right now, for the most part, we're choosing not to address it. And we know that then what we're doing is just exacerbating inequalities and creating these massive risks. So we can't put it to the side like I think we've done for a long time. It's here. I think it's a missing space. And that's why that's a really narrow focus we have on trying to bring this to the, you know, to the stage and bring it to be something that people actually focus on because we know it's affecting so many people today. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because on my Twitter account the other day, I said we have, I mean, I get a lot of emails from uh, reporters asking me to comment on things. And most recently, the Yellowstone flooding, for example, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you yeah. were paying quite a bit of attention to. And I said, we have to stop using future tense. We will expect this. This is going to happening. Newsflash, it's happening. It's here. And so I, I, I really resonate with what you said. You mentioned policymakers. I understand there was a 2022 mayor summit uh, or will be, or has happened. I don't know uh, who, who's, who was involved in that and what were your, what were your goals with the mayor summit? 
I'm thrilled to say it happened. And I'm also thrilled to not be planning it anymore. So <laughs> we were thrilled to host two dozen mayors and local leaders in DC. And, you know, all of these local leaders took three days out of their busy schedule. Most of these mayors are have full-time jobs, are also mayors, chose to come to DC because of how deeply and passionately they feel about these issues and the impact they're seeing in their communities. So the two dozen leaders we had were from, you know, North Carolina, South Carolina, Iowa, Texas, Virginia, Florida, and a huge range of diversity, big and small cities, inland and coastal, all dealing with this challenge. And what we did was create a space where they could learn from each other and exchange best practices in the room. Mayors were sharing, you know, codes and ordinances they had used, sharing tips on engaging the public, and also create a space for them to hear from folks in D.C. So they heard from White House Infrastructure Coordinator Mitch Landrew. We had dozens of meetings with members of Congress educating them on the importance of these issues in their district. Um, and what I'm most excited about is this was a great three days, but really there's so much coming out of it and what the mayors want to bring home. A lot of them actually creating kind of regional groups to be able to deal with this with their neighbors and spur action there. So really excited about what's to come as well. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, talking uh, with Melissa Roberts for the American Flood Coalition, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I know that there is quite, sometimes we can get a little frustrated that, that it seems like there's climate den delayism or we're sort of spinning our wheels and not acting. But there are some things happening in the inside the beltway there. I mean, one is the uh, infrastructure bill that was recently passed. I know there are a couple of bills sort of working their way through Congress, the Floods Act and the Precept Act, which I'm sure you're monitoring as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But how is the, is the new infrastructure bill that was passed? And it was a bipartisan bill, by the way. Is that going to impact our ability to deal with flooding in any way? I'm glad you asked, because I think this is actually a really underreported storyline coming out of the infrastructure law. Uh, that most people aren't hearing about unless you're, you know, following my LinkedIn where I'm really excited about it. But <laughs> this is the most amount of money that's ever been spent proactively on flooding and adaptation. So a lot of people might remember in all of the infrastructure debates, this number 47 billion cited for what would be included for resilience. All told, when we actually look at what passed into law, there's approximately $90.3 billion across 25 programs in authorizations and appropriated funding that are resilience related. And that might sound like a lot of DC Beltway talk, but to break this down, like what does that mean, right? First of all, a lot of this money is proactive compared to most of the way that we fund this project, which is only after you get hit by disasters. So that's really important because it means we can actually buy down risk before people get hurt. And the types of things this is going to fund, I mean, we're talking about improvements to sewer infrastructure. If you live in a place where you're caring about combined sewer overflows, right, it can't handle the amount and you're getting, you know, waste dumped into your river. This can help pay for those sorts of improvements to handle the volume from increased rainfall through, you know, the state drinking water and clean water state revolving fund. This is going to fund things like coastal protection and levees through the Army Corps of Engineers that can protect against big catastrophic events. This can pay for things like 
hardening the electric grid to reduce the risk of power outages during natural disasters. I mean, we know during Hurricane Ida, 1.2 million people across eight states lost power. So these are the types of things that can affect people's everyday lives that are in this bill, and it's really meaningful. Of course, the challenge now is how we spend it, and do we do it fairly and equitably and, you know, quickly, right? Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Melissa Roberts with the American Flood Coalition. She's actually the founder of it and the executive director. So we go straight to the top here on Weather Geeks. So happy to talk to uh, Melissa about and it's something she was just saying in that first segment. You know, I'm, I'm involved with a project here at the University of Georgia with the Army Corps of Engineers, and uh, it's called the Network for Engineering with Nature. And we're thinking very much about how to use engineering with nature. And that's talking about a buzzword that's really um, important and uh, gaining a lot of traction now inside the Beltway as well, how we can engineer our, our, our system or our society with nature-based solutions to sort of mitigate or adapt to flooding and so forth. So Doug was quite pleased to hear you mention uh, what you said about the proactive nature of the infrastructure bill, because too often in weather and climate disaster world, our policy makers are reactive. Uh, they'll throw money at new weather uh, forecasting capabilities after the fact, or flooding or hurricanes. When we see these things coming, they're here, they're happening. So I really wanted to mention that. Now, one thing that I want to talk about now, and I kind of alluded to a little bit when I mentioned these flood, flood the flood bill and the precip bill, but you often talk about the importance of up-to-date rainfall records in fighting the flood problem. Um, just give the listeners, because again, this this audience may not be familiar with this problem here. Give the listeners the sort of lay of the land of this sort of how old this data is, our our our, our flood projections and our recurrence intervals and those types of things. Is that up to date to kind of account for today's 2022 rainstorms? Short answer, no. This is a perfect topic for our fellow weather geeks. So rainfall data is one of the most overlooked and highest reward opportunities to actually ensure that we're incorporating adaptation to more frequent and intense extreme weather events. But across the country, we're actually using outdated rainfall records, sometimes as old as 50 years, when we're building new infrastructure that's supposed to last 30 to 50 years. So 22 states and the District of Columbia are using rainfall records that are over 15 years old. And five states have an updated rainfall record since at least 1975. And that's just how often they've been updated. The other thing I really want to draw attention to is that none of the NOAA federal records are forward-looking. So even when we update them, they're not looking ahead to increasing more intense rainfall and changing weather patterns. So what that means is 
we're never, you know, we build infrastructure often 30, 50 years ahead, and we just don't have the right rainfall, and it's not a good use of taxpayer money. So this is a huge issue that we can change, and we have the science to change, but we're not putting it into practice yet. Yeah, and there, and like I said, I've mentioned the flood and precepts at precept acts, which have been proposed, and I think they're you know mandating in those bills, you know, to update some of this uh, information with more frequency. I think every five to ten years, depending on which uh, product we're talking about. And just to give you some con, I just wrote about this this morning for something else that I was talking about. When we think about flooding, it's not just what falls from the sky, although we know that's changing. Uh, it's the imperviousness, the expanded impervious surface. Uh, uh, parking lots and pavements and runoff and so forth. But it's also the stormwater management design and the assumptions of what's we, what we in our world call stationarity. This assumption that I, that I know uh, Melissa would resonate with, this assumption that you design engineering assuming the 1970s rainstorms will be just like the 2022 rainstorms. And guess what? They're not. And so now these, uh, these, these systems are being overwhelmed. And as Melissa noted, um, being sort of based on uh, sort of these sort of outdated records in some cases. Give us a little bit of sort of update on where the flood and precept acts are and what you feel will be their most important contribution. This is incredibly important. These both have not yet passed in Congress, but have a good shot. And we're really pushing to see them come through this Congress. Um, and so what this would do is give NOAA the budget and the mandate to modernize and periodically update precipitation studies for the entire U.S. and its territories. Right now, states actually have to request and pay for the updates. So as you can imagine, that's why we see so many states with outdated records. This would change it so that it's an updated source of federal data similar to the federal sea level rise curves. And, you know, this will get incorporated into everything from, you know, the height of seawalls, the size of storm drains, the elevation of roads. So it's incredibly important that we update this as soon as we can, especially as we're looking to spend, you know, a historic amount of money on infrastructure. We want to be building it the right way to last. We don't want to be putting pipes in the ground that are too small based on assumptions that things look exactly like they did in 1975. Now, you were a lead author on a publication uh, called How to Mobilize Private Sector Financing for Sustainable Infrastructure. Um, how critical do you think the private sector will be in managing changing in infrastructure needs in this evolving climate? So the private sector will be incredibly important, especially as we're talking about deploying the biggest investment in infrastructure in decades. You know, we're talking about a workforce that needs to be able to design, build, monitor, and operate a huge amount of infrastructure. But I will say when it comes to some of these particular challenges of adaptation, I think people look to the private sector as a silver bullet without taking into the account the fact that we don't have the right incentives to unlock the power of the private sector. So I started my career in the private sector in infrastructure finance and part of the reason that I moved to now be working in the policy and civic space is because when it came to questions of adaptation, I would talk to cities that we were working with and they'd say, we know that it's going to be, you know, billions of dollars for adaptation, but we think maybe the private sector will come in and pay for it. And then I talked to big private sector investors that we were advising and they'd say, is there an investment thesis 
in adaptation. And I'd say in the US, there's not because you could invest in infrastructure and NFIP will see the returns. So until we change the problem of these incentives, we're not NFIP, going to- NFIP. Oh, the, sorry. The National Flood Insurance Program. Gotcha. I so, knew what it meant, but I knew that many of our listeners may not. <laughs> of course. No, that's a great clarification. So I think the question here is how do we unlock and align policy incentives so that it makes sense for the private sector to invest and help unlock solutions to adaptation? Because right now it really doesn't. We see some private sector innovation in areas like insurance, but Insurance is risk transfer, not risk reduction. And so this is a huge challenge that I'm really passionate about because there's so much talent in the private sector, but we need to first change these policy incentives so that it makes sense for the private sector to invest and incorporate resilience. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Melissa Roberts from the American Flood Coalition. And this is an important issue because I think oftentimes people, uh, when we're talking about extreme, many people often think that they're far removed from them. But flooding is something that we all deal with, whether we're dealing living at the coast and dealing with coastal flooding, surge and inundation, or with rainfall, as I talked about the rains that we, the three inches in two hours rain that we had last night with significant rain rates. Now, let me put on my meteorolo- meteorological hat for a moment. When we're talking about climate change, don't fall into the trap of thinking, well, the rainfall amounts haven't really changed too much where I live. So what are you all talking about? One of the things that we as scientists have always talked about is the rainfall rates. Focus on the rates, the intensity that rain is falling now. That's that's where the science is showing that that's very different than, say, 40, 50 years ago, the top one, two, three percent rain events in terms of intensity. So uh, you can kind of get sort of fooled if you focus too much on whether the amount of rain has changed where you live. So that's I wanted to make that point. I want to come back to Melissa the American Flood Coalition recognizes people as federal champions or as a federal champion. What is that? So federal champions are a category uh, for members of Congress. It's an honorary title for leaders who are committed to helping communities plan smarter, respond faster, and recover stronger. So to date, we've recognized 29 federal champions from 12 states And we really partner with them to spotlight flooding issues and solutions, drive proactive policies, and just help educate around the issues. Because as we say, we engage elected officials at all levels, and our members of Congress have a big role to play in this. Um, And we're really proud that our federal champions reflect a huge diversity of political, geographic, and professional perspectives. So Republicans and Democrats, you know, inland and coastal states, folks from Representative Ashley Hinson in Iowa to Representative Bobby Scott in Virginia. So really trying to create a strong coalition of folks that want to see solutions 
and be proactive on this and not reactive. Yeah, Melissa, you you strike me as someone that has your finger on the pulse of the Beltway and policymakers and congressional folks and so forth. Um, what is your just professional opinion about where we, I mean, I think we've moved beyond this climate change happen. I mean, there's still a small percentage of people out there that are sort of stuck in that world, but then we've kind of moved beyond that. But I'm curious what, what your your take is on the pulse in terms of policymakers, because, I mean, we, we know this isn't a red blue issue. I mean, the rain doesn't care if you vote Democrat or Republican, it just falls to the ground. And so what is your pulse on where we are in terms of bipartisan action on, on these issues? I'd say that's a huge bright spot. And it's actually one of the things that's really refreshing about doing this work is we are seeing that this is a nonpartisan issue where we can really get bipartisan compromise. So, you know, flooding is a really local issue. Most of the time we're talking about mayors who are hearing directly from citizens in their community who are saying, I flooded and it was devastated and I'm terrified it's going to happen again, or I can't get to work because it's flooding on the main street and I'm late to my job or I can't pick up my kids from school. They're canceling school eight days a year because of flooding. So it really helps take the politics out of it. And we found that this issue is just less polarizing when we talk about it. And it's really helpful to kind of build that muscle memory of how you actually bring people together. There are so few issues anymore that I think we do see bipartisan compromise on. And it's so important, I think, to have those, to even just create those relationships in the muscle memory for how to have a bipartisan issue. So we think it's so important. And we're really proud that, you know, all of the policy that we have pushed has, you know, at the state level in Congress has passed on, you know, an overwhelming bipartisan basis and has always had co-sponsors from both parties. Yeah, that's that's been my take as well. I mean, I testified before the House Science Committee in 2019 on extreme weather events. And, you know, I mean, people were asking me, oh, my gosh, were you scared or do you get attacked by one side of the aisle? I, I, I didn't find that to be the case at all. I think I mean, I think people can get lost in the Twitter sphere and their uncle, their misguided uncle at Thanksgiving dinner is spouting all kinds of myths and things that you read on YouTube or something. But for the most part, I'm finding that there is bipartisan sort of effort in these areas. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that you do as well. Melissa, where can people on Twitter or the internet find out more about your organization? Thanks for asking. So we're on all platforms. We're at Flood Coalition and we're at floodcoalition.org. So those are great places to find us get in touch. Um, we're really active on social media, putting out resources. So would love to connect. What's, what's your next big move going forward? You got anything in the works that, that we really should know about or hear about or we can support or help you with? Yeah, we're really focused on, I think a lot of people took the passage of infrastructure funding as the victory. And I mean, I'm excited about it too. I, you know, I said it was historic, but the next challenge in front of us is really how we spend that money well. And that challenge cannot be overestimated. We historically as a country have not necessarily taken this uh, these types of opportunities and spent money on 
quality, shovel-worthy projects and done it in an equitable way where we're making sure to invest in the communities that are most vulnerable and have most been harmed. This is a huge challenge in the adaptation space that we've created this maze of bureaucracy that is almost impossible to navigate for small, rural, low-resource, and historically marginalized communities. And they are the ones that need the investments. So how we do this well, especially after decades of starving communities of any funding to design good projects, is the next challenge. So that's the challenge. Here at AFC, we're really focused on putting together resources and working with communities to both show how especially lower resource communities can pull from plans they already have to find good projects, stormwater master plans, transportation master plans, things they already have, and how we can quickly surface challenges that to being able to spend money well and fix it while we're still spending this money over the next five years instead of in a retrospective report 10 years later. So that's the big challenge in front of us that we're excited about is how we do this well. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, the, we, we've got to be quick and nimble <laughs> with this. I mean, there, I mean, I'm on the other side of this as an academic at a university. Everything's done through these long, drawn out proposals and reports. And, and co- I mean, it's, 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 it's just the way the system is set up. And it's like turning a really big, slow moving ship. But if, if we don't quickly change the agility of how, the, how these major investments uh, are distributed, I, I, I think we're doing harm to, to all of us in that regards. So I really appreciate your your push in that regard. Wow, this has been a great conversation. We we have to end it here. Um, there's no geek of the week. This is usually the time of the podcast where we give a geek of the week where we highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist, or weather weenie, but we need some new nominations. So if you're listening and you know someone that would be an awesome geek of the week, please go to our Twitter or, or Facebook page and we have a form on there where you can nominate someone or nominate yourself and we'll feature, feature you on a future episode of Weather Geeks is our Geek of the Week. Um, Melissa, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Dr. Shepard, thank you. And thank you to all of our fellow Weather Geeks out there that are listening. Long live Weather Geeks. And thank you all for listening as usual. And we'll see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.